2: And welcome to this week's episode of What Went Wrong. I am one of your hosts, Chris Winterbauer, with, of course, my lovely host, Lizzie Bassett. Lizzie, speak so they know you're alive. That's me. Okay, cut it out. Uh, to get started, we would like to remind you guys, if you are enjoying this podcast, you can do us a huge solid by first hitting that subscribe button, Ooh. and once you've done that, give us a rating, wow. five stars, five stars, Yay. and then a review and what does that get you well not only does your review get printed out at my parents house and stuck on their fridge we'll also read some of them here no way Uh, here we go a recent one i really enjoyed the hosts keep you laughing throughout the whole podcast well thank you bailey cm7 (laughs) (laughs) we keep ourselves laughing too except in this episode where we start crying (laughs) Obsessed with this podcast. I feel badly for my husband and friends. I feel bad for them too, Angel219. Fantastic podcast. I can't stop listening to what went wrong. You might have a problem, Lauren Zby. Great podcast. This has become a quick favorite of mine. I recently drove across the country. Well, way to brag, SS Trafiki. <laughs> I normally don't listen to podcasts, but this one caught my eye after seeing an ad for it on Instagram. Way to be susceptible to capitalism. The Birdman Rises Again. So what
3: we're trying to tell you guys is that if you would like to be berated by Chris on this podcast, please leave a review because he will insult you in front of the whole audience.
2: (laughs) I read them verbatim. That's all I did. Anywho, that's your guys' directive. Hop to it after we get through this episode.
3: But first... I want to give a little PSA about the space that we're entering.
0: You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone.
2: And no, that was not what played before we entered 2020. That was, of course, the original Twilight Zone introduction. Lizzie, how are you doing this week?
3: Well, doing a little rough after doing the research on this one. A um, little little depressed.
2: <laughs> and this one, to be clear, is the Twilight Zone colon the movie
3: Actually, weirdly enough, it is just Twilight Zone colon the movie, which I don't understand because the show was the Twilight Zone. But anyway, that's the beginning of many problems (laughs) um, with this movie anthology version of the classic beloved TV show. So if you're ready, Chris, I'm just going to jump right in because there's really nothing. There's nothing fun to set up here.
2: All I'll say is uh, i watched this movie for the first time in preparation for this podcast episode. I am lightly briefed just through anecdotes about what went wrong a couple of the major things that happened on this movie and it made me so sad to think that such tragedies occurred in construction of to be blunt like such a mediocre to not good project it's just everything about it just kind of bummed me out <laughs> from start yeah. to finish
3: so just so everybody knows before we get into this um because it, it is significantly heavier subject matter than we have covered previously on the podcast. Um, this is actually going to be a two-part episode. This will be, obviously, the first part. There's just too much to get through in one episode with this. Um, I do think it's an important topic to to talk about so that it doesn't ever happen again. But for anyone that does not know... This episode is going to detail the events that lead up to and include a deadly helicopter accident on the set of Twilight Zone, the movie that resulted in the deaths of actor Vic Morrow and two six and seven year old children, Renee Chen and Micah Dinley. This is essentially I mean, honestly, I'm treating this like a true crime episode. So feel free to bail now if this is not something you want to hear about. It's not going to be graphic, um, but it is upsetting subject matter. Uh, I would argue, though, fascinating and, again, important to learn about so that we do not repeat it. Um, The second episode in the series, I'll be focusing on the aftermath of the accident and the ensuing trial and how it changed Hollywood, so buckle up for that later. Let's get started. We are talking about the 1983 horror anthology film Twilight Zone, the movie. It was produced by Steven Spielberg and John Landis. The film features four segments, three of which are just straight up remakes from the original series, which when I watched this blew my mind because it's like, why, <laughs> why, mm-hmm. <Yeah.
1: laughs>
3: why'd you do this? Um, there, there's really no why. Like, I, I honestly couldn't particularly find it. Um, there was, however, one completely original story out of the four, and that is the one that we are going to be talking about today. Each segment had a different director at the helm. John Landis directed and wrote the prologue, epilogue, and segment one called Time Out, which will be the focus of our episode. Spielberg directed segment two, Kick the Can, which features uh, Scatman Crothers and is fine. It's not great. Um, Joe Dante of, I believe, Gremlins fame Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, directed It's a Good Life. And Although he
2: had not directed Gremlins yet.
3: No, so he and and the next director we're going to talk about uh, both were much more up and coming directors than Spielberg and Landis and the two segments that uh Dante and the last director is George Miller directed were far better of mm-hmm. the four segments like yeah. exponentially better than mm-hmm. the ones that John Landis and Steven Spielberg directed. Um, this is the one little fun fact, Chris, that we can throw out, is that in the third segment, entitled It's a Good Life, there is a cameo by one of your friend's dads. There's a man who is rude to the little yes, kid. Yes, who's
2: rude to the little boy. Okay.
3: That man who shoves a child yes. is a man named Jeffrey Bannister, <laughs>
2: no (laughs) Troy Bannister's father
3: it looks exactly like him (laughs) it does
2: that is the slightly larger more brunette version of Troy Mm -hmm. wow (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
3: okay so the last segment in of the four is a remake of the very famous episode Nightmare at 20,000 feet Mm -hmm. this is directed by George Miller it stars John Lithgow Mm -hmm. um Again, it's fine. John Lithgow gives a great performance. There's a couple of things in it that are really awesome. I actually liked the sort of like Immortan Joe um, monster, the mm-hmm. way that it creeped out on the turbine. Like, yeah. it, it's fine. It I was would like say that's heavy the best metal. Of of it's them. like
2: riding yeah. it like a dragon, like calling the <laughs> yeah. lightning down on it.
3: <laughs> I, I enjoyed that. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the background on the actual show, The Twilight Zone, very briefly for anybody that doesn't know. It's a series that was created by Rod Serling, and that's the man's voice that you heard at the top of this, reading the very, very famous um, intro to The Twilight Zone. That's the original intro, Mm -hmm. I believe. Um, He was a successful television writer before he decided to write The Twilight Zone. The first iteration aired in 1958. It was called The Time Element. After the success of this one-off episode, the pilot, Where Is Everybody?, aired in 1959. The original first series ran from 1959 to 1964. Now, it's interesting the reason that Rod Serling turned to sci-fi and fantasy. Um as I said, he was a successful TV and drama writer, he was also a vocal opponent to censorship, and he had grown really, really frustrated with TV censors mm-hmm. for essentially nitpicking every single script he would turn in. There there were a lot of stories about him having turned in like full TV scripts mm-hmm. that were very racially charged and, and trying to make these points and everything, and by the time the network and sort of the ad executives would get the script back to him, it was completely changed and was basically nothing. So he thought, what can I write that the censors either won't care about or won't be smart enough to figure out what I'm actually saying? And the answer was uh, sci-fi.
2: Right, you can do socially conscious storylines that don't feel threatening because they're not in our reality. Exactly. And this is kind of around the Red Scare time, right, in Hollywood as well, where a lot of writers and directors were being kind of blackballed for being, quote, communist sympathizers.
3: Yes, a very interesting and Scary Time in Hollywood. Serling wrote 92 of the initial series runs, 156 episodes. Wow. He was awesome. Really cool. He also always appeared in every episode. Mm -hmm. He's the guy with the kind of messed up teeth that Mm -hmm. would um, tell you you know, what we were about to see. The show was rebooted to not as much critical acclaim from 1985 to 1989, which is interesting because that's two years after this movie came out. And it has now been rebooted again with Jordan Peele at the helm in 2019. All this is on CBS. Hearing that about Rod Serling and the censorship just made it make so much more sense to me why Jordan Peele would be um, so interested in in the project. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's such a That's so in line with what he did with Get Out. Get Get Out is sort of, to me, like an excellent extension of the original Twilight Zone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm not going to go into any more detail on the original show um, or really the other three parts of the movie because we are here to talk about the first segment in the movie, which is called Time Out. Again, this is the only original story that was written for Twilight Zone, the movie, and it was written and directed by John Landis. So let's talk about John Landis. He was born in Chicago in 1950. He relocated to Los Angeles when he was only four months old. So he grew up in L.A. Um, he decided he wanted to be a film director really young. And as soon as he was able to begin picking up as many jobs on a film set as he could, he did. There are quotes where he's like, I was a PA. I was a dialogue coach. Mm-hmm. I, was, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Um, you know, I was a stunt double. I, I did everything, which, mm-hmm. like, I believe him. I think he did. Um, he was a real hustler. Right. But I do think this is an important point to remember, because when somebody feels like they understand every aspect of every job on set, I think potentially an element of hubris can come in there that you might think you know better than other people. Yeah.
2: Like I've grown up with this. I've been doing this right. for years. I, you know, Which, my to be blood. fair, is true. It's right.
3: true. He didn't go to film school. He worked his ass off and worked his way up essentially from the mailroom and really mm-hmm. did learn every aspect of the set this guy has always known he wanted to be a director i want to play a clip from the fangoria series screamography which one episode focused on john landis where he talks about when he found out that this is what he wanted to do
1: i saw a movie at the crest theater on westwood boulevard in westwood uh 1957 or 8 called the seventh voyage of sinbad and uh, you'll find that most filmmakers have some movie. It's often King Kong or The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad or Touch of Evil or La Dolce Vita. Some, some movie that sparked them, that inspired them, that that was the movie. And Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, for me, I was really little. I was seven or eight, and I, I really had the full theatrical experience of suspension of disbelief. I loved it. I loved it. And so I went home and asked my mother, who does that? who makes the movie, and she said the director. And that was very sophisticated of her. I realize in retrospect, honestly, I mean, she could have said, you know, the hairdresser. I'd have a whole different career. But she uh, said the director, so from the time I was eight, that was what I wanted to be, was a movie director. So I had that advantage, which was knowing very clearly what I wanted to do.
3: I do think it's an interesting tell that his question was basically like... Mm -hmm who is who is in charge who runs this show. Yeah,
1: who makes
2: all of this happen.
3: Right. Not like not like who writes this or who's that person on screen or like it's who is the person steering this ship. Yeah. So at 21 years old, he makes his directorial debut with the movie Schlock, a tribute to monster movies. From there, he is hired to direct Kentucky Fried Movie, and this ends up kind of being his audition to direct the movie that launches him into Hollywood stardom, which is 1978's National Lampoon's Animal House. Mm -hmm. Even though it didn't necessarily receive the best reviews, uh, it it was a huge financial success. It's great. There's, There's really no way around that. It's an awesome movie. I'm sure it was a bit of a mess, but very fun. He follows this up with 1980s The Blues Brothers, which mm-hmm. I'm sure we will cover on yes, this we podcast will. at some point. Because <laughs> it, Yeah, it cost uh, $30 million yes, and was did. an infamous mess. However, again, kind of a great movie. Yeah. Like I, I love it. Apparently a
2: 300-page um, first draft script. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Dan Aykroyd just didn't know how to write a movie, so he just wrote every scene he'd ever wanted to write in a row <laughs> <laughs> for 300 pages.
3: That and, sounds right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but again, like it, it ends up being great. It's a classic. Uh, next comes 1981's An American Werewolf in London. So these are three like oh, yeah. massive hits. I love
2: American Werewolf in London. I, it's such a fun movie.
3: They're all amazing. Um, this is all before he's 35 years old. Also Delicious. should mention he is also uh, in the same year that The Twilight Zone comes out, Trading Places comes out. Oh, wow. Which is one of my favorite movies of all mm-hmm. time. Um, I'm actually, I was realizing as I was researching this, I think I've grown up with a lot of John Landis without realizing it. My parents loved these movies and so I would watch them and I, I do think that they have very much sort of affected my sense of humor. Also should mention he directed, uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller.
2: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. That makes sense. It feels. It feels like John Landis. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So basically, at this time, Spielberg was quickly becoming the master of summer action blockbusters. He had done Raiders of the Lost Ark at this point. He had done e t. Obviously, he's done Jaws. He's enormous. And Landis has become sort of the master of this kind of like gross out, raunchy comedy as well with with a kind of like horror element. Added to it, which was like pretty pioneering, I think. Yeah, and it
2: feels very 80s. Like, it, Landis yes. feels so 80s to me. He
3: is, in a way that I think Spielberg's movies transcend the time they came out in a little bit. Yes. Landis's Landis' Landis
2: is the time. Yes. Yeah, exactly.
3: I, I also think it's interesting to note that the late 70s, and we talked about this on the Heaven's Gate episode, but this is really the, he- the heyday of the new Hollywood era a time where the power on a film set had completely shifted from the studio to one person, and that one person was the director. So that's the world in which Steven Spielberg and John Landis are coming up, a world in which they have almost complete control over the sets that they are on. If you look at the cast of Twilight Zone, the movie, they're not really the draw here. The the draw are John Landis and Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's like, if anything, maybe the most famous cast at the time was the prologue, because you have Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks. Yeah. And I guess Lithgow was pretty
3: Yes, John Lithgow was the other one. I think he'd maybe just done World According to Garp. There's not a ton of information about how or why the idea for this Twilight Zone reboot came about. It doesn't really matter. I suspect, if I had to guess, that it had something to do with the idea that being able to throw more money at these stories would offer something better and and it's clearly a show that spielberg and landis had grown up watching i think that this idea is particularly evident in the fact that the story landis chose to direct and also write involved much much bigger set pieces and was designed to allow him to play with so many explosives uh mm-hmm. is in a way that like it doesn't match it feels up.
2: so different than yes. the other three
3: it doesn't match any twilight zone episode ever I think it's also worth noting that Rod Serling's original show was often played by budget limitations and cutbacks. So mm-hmm. I wonder if if this was an attempt to throw the money that they felt Twilight Zone should have had at right. it. Like, for for example, um, six episodes in season two were actually shot basically live to tape to minimize both shooting right. and editing costs. But that made it an absolute right. nightmare for locations, and, and they had to stop uh, doing it. But unfortunately, I think what we're going to learn here is that more money does, in fact, equal more problems. So let's go ahead and talk about this first segment of the movie, Time Out. Following a short prologue with Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks, as Chris mentioned, we get to the first full segment of the movie. It follows a man named Bill Connor as he joins his friends at the bar for a drink. He just found out that he didn't get a promotion he wanted and starts on a super racist diatribe against the Jewish guy who got the job instead. Should be noted that, uh, evidently, this Jewish man had been at the company longer. Anyway, he then proceeds to start in on pretty much every other marginalized group, including Mm -hmm. black people, Muslims, and Koreans and Vietnamese. He is uh, an equal opportunity uh, bigot. When he exits the bar, he's suddenly transported back to Nazi-occupied France, where he experiences a brief moment of what it might have been like to be a Jew. Then he's suddenly sort of uh, thrown into A KKK rally where he experiences it from the POV of a black man. Then finally, he's transported to Vietnam during the Vietnam War, where he's fired on by American troops despite being unarmed. It ends with a sudden jump back in time to the World War II setting, where he is captured, thrown on a train, and carted away. Looking out the slats in the wood car of the train, he sees the bar and his two friends outside looking for him. So I want to introduce you to the main people we're going to be talking about over these two episodes. The first is Vic Morrow. And he is the actor who played Mm -hmm. Bill. The second is John Landis, our director, who you've already met. The third is George Folsey Jr., an associate producer. Next, unit production manager Dan Allingham, special effects coordinator Paul Stewart, and finally, helicopter pilot Dorsey Wingo. So let's start with Vic Morrow. He's born Victor Marozov in 1929, raised in the Bronx to a Jewish family, interestingly enough. Mm. At 17 years old in 1946, he dropped out of high school, enlisted in the United States Navy. He uses the GI Bill to enroll in college. He studies drama, makes his big screen debut in Blackboard Jungle for MGM in 1955, went on to have a very successful career as a prolific, mostly TV actor, um, including his role as Sergeant Chip Saunders in the series Combat as well as Walter Matthaus' nemesis in The Bad News Bears. He also studied directing at USC and directed seven episodes of Combat, along with a few other TV shows. It should also be mentioned he was Jennifer Jason Leigh's father. George Folsey Jr. is a frequent Landis collaborator. This is the associate producer on Twilight Mm -hmm. Zone, the movie. Uh, That's important to remember, as he will come up frequently over these next two episodes, particularly in the second episode when we get to The Trial. Um, he's been an editor or co-editor alongside Landis for tons of movies, including Kentucky fried movie, animal house, the blues brothers, thriller coming to America among many, many, many others. The guy works like crazy. He keeps working like crazy. Um, he had also served as an associate producer on, on the blues brothers, schlock and American werewolf in London trading places. The movie Landis had released just prior to twilight zone. And of course the two Landis led segments of twilight zone. Dan Allingham, a production manager who also worked with John Landis on Thriller. Um, Twilight Zone and Thriller were his first times working with Landis as opposed to George Folsey. And by the time that Dan starts working with John Landis, John Landis is already huge. He went on to work with Landis a few more times. However, his last credit as a production manager on IMDb is 1989's Communion. And Allingham is actually in the helicopter um, during the accident, which we'll get to in a little bit. Paul Stewart uh, is an experienced special effects supervisor. His first credit is in 1971. Um, He's probably used to relatively overbearing directors who are asking for a bit too much. He's continued to have an extremely successful career as an effects coordinator and supervisor. Lots of movies, The Burbs, Thelma and Louise, Far and Away, Tombstone. By all accounts, I mean, he's a, a very accomplished special effects supervisor. Oh, wow. It should, however, be noted that unlike the other guys, he only works with Landis one more time and that is on 1991's Oscar. The last person we're going to talk about here is helicopter pilot Dorsey Allen Wingo. Wingo was 35 years old at the time of filming. He was a real-life Vietnam veteran Mm. who had very recently set his sights on becoming a stunt helicopter pilot in the movie industry. So, worth noting, he had more than 4,500 hours of flying time prior to the shoot and was the head of operations for Western Helicopters, Inc. of Rialto, All this is to say that this is not an inexperienced pilot at all. Um, He was an army combat pilot in Vietnam and had experience flying while serving in remote mountaintop regions of Peru. However, he was an extremely inexperienced pilot when it came to being a stunt pilot on movie sets, Mm. which is a very, very different thing than being a pilot in a war. So it was clear from the beginning of filming on the segment that Landis was adamant the stunts be as, quote, real as possible. On June 21st, 1982, according to later testimony by both special effects operator Kevin Quibble and on-set photographer Morgan Renard, Landis had allegedly been getting frustrated with the first of Vic Morrow's scene in Vietnam. Now, Chris, I don't know if you remember this, but it's actually the only scene you end up seeing in the final cut. Mm -hmm. It's where he's in the stream kind of surrounded by those like Mm -hmm. banana plants. He hides from Vietnamese soldiers only to be mistaken by Americans as the enemy and fired on. Now, Landis allegedly, by the way, there's going to be a lot of allegedly in this episode, felt that the scene didn't feel real enough and the holes being blown in the banana plants weren't big enough. They were using air guns. Renard reported that Landis was informed it would take about 15 minutes to make some adjustments to the special effects. And again, allegedly, Landis decided that this would take too long. So he had one of the special effects guys just go get live ammunition.
2: Whoa. Yeah. To, to
3: fire around Vic Morrow? So there's very conflicting information about this. I saw one thing that said that what they did, they essentially had Vic Morrow on set, yanked him off set, and then fired a couple seconds after they pulled him off set. I saw other things saying that they never fired anywhere near Vic Morrow, that they fired in a different direction, that they were like 25 feet away from him.
2: Yeah, but even so, using live ammunition on set, like, exactly.
3: Others testified that the idea to use live ammunition was the idea of someone other than John Landis. However, no one seemed to be able to actually pinpoint who that other someone was. It should be noted. Right.
2: It was the ghost. It
3: was the ghost. <laughs> it,
2: it was, was the, the character Dan Aykroyd.
3: It was Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> yeah. Dan Aykroyd was just hanging out. And he was like, hey, let's use some live rounds. Probably. Um, but regardless, it it is confirmed that live ammunition was used. Like, that is not a rumor. That is, that's real. <sighs> that's insane. It's insane. And this is something that mm. when Steven Spielberg found out about later, he was furious. Ugh. Also important, Steven Spielberg, according to his own sworn statement, was never on set for any portion of this segment that John Landis shot. And I don't think that if he had seen any of what we're about to start talking about, he would have allowed any of this to happen. hmm Yeah, he wouldn't have allowed the live ammunition like that's no, there's no way. Camera operator Michael Scott was quoted as having said, quote, I had no sense whatever that the people running the operation had any sense of caring, any sense of responsibility for anyone involved, whether it be actors, crew or bystanders.
2: Yeah, not a good place to start, guys. Uh,
3: Your case is not on a good foot right now. So this brings us to later that night on July 21st, 1982. The location of the shoot was Indian Dunes in Santa Clarita, California. This is a very frequent shooting spot, was a very frequent shooting spot, due to its exotic look and close proximity to Los Angeles. The scene that was to be shot was supposed to be the climax of the entire segment. Morrow would stumble upon a Vietnamese village under attack by U.S. forces, and in a heroic and ultimately redemptive act, he would carry two young Vietnamese children to safety across a stream, all while massive explosions were going off with helicopters hovering above them. Now, this does not appear in the final cut of the movie. All we see is Vic Morrow appears
2: in the stream, sees the U.S. soldier, says, I'm American. They start firing at him. They fire in every direction. He jumps off to the side. And then we're out of that segment. Yep, that's it. And we just jump back to the Nazi section and it's over.
3: Yeah. My suspicion is that the segment that we do actually see end it, where he is carted off on the train back in the sort of Nazi era, was not supposed to be the end of the segment. And that this scene that we are talking about in Vietnam was supposed to be the big final ending moment. Right. Without it, there actually isn't really a redemptive moment for Vic Morrow's character in the segment at all. And it leaves for kind of a weird experience. Kind of like he goes to hell. Yeah. It just kind of ends. Yeah. So, this is always designed as a night shoot, which right away is problematic because it involves children. According to casting director Marcy Leiroff, Leiroff, sorry, um, she told Landis that the scene, quote, sounded kind of dangerous more than a month before it was shot. It was also pointed out to Landis and company by the casting team that having children work after 10 p.m. would have required a special waiver from the state labor board.
2: Yep, because we shot with kids on our movie and you, you can't shoot kids overnight. It's just not allowed.
3: Yeah. Can you actually talk about how difficult it can be to work with kids? It's impossible for a good reason, too.
2: But so the way it works is based on the child's age, you get a certain number of shooting hours with the child. And when they're 18 or they're an emancipated adult, and that can be as early as 16, you can work a full 12 hours with them. But for every year you go back, you lose some time. So at, you know, 13, 14, for example, you can get nine, I think, shooting hours with them that's with a, a lot. full one hour like break of education. Yeah, I think that might be fourteen. And then once you go earlier than fifteen or fourteen, it starts getting restricted where you're down to seven shooting hours, six shooting hours, and that's that's time on set. So like they can go into school for like a one hour break, mm-hmm. but then once you bring them on, the clock is ticking. And when you have a twelve hour shooting day and you need like a lead child actor for the whole, you know, movie, you're restricting your daily capacity by a lot. And everyone's getting paid every day as if they're working a full 12 hour a day. And then that goes all the way down to like, you know, if you work with an infant, mm-hmm. you get them for 30 minutes, right? That's like literally what you get when you're shooting a commercial with a baby, you know, you get you get 30 minutes. And if you don't have it, like, that's why they use twins. Yeah, is so that they, you can get 30 minutes with each of the kids and move on.
3: So keep in mind that the kids that we are talking about here are six and seven years old. So based on what Chris just said, not only would they ha- should they have gotten a special permit from the state labor board for them to have been shooting after 10 p.m. but they also would have had extremely limited time with them and this is the biggest scene they're trying to shoot in the entire thing a very ambitious scene and
2: my guess is that the waiver might not have even been approved because yes. it's such a dangerous setup that oftentimes these things are rejected
3: yeah so landis allegedly told the casting team quote to hell with you guys we'll get them off the streets ourselves this led to two children six-year-old renee chen and seven-year-old micah din lee being quote-unquote hired under the table production secretary donna schumann would later testify that both landis and george folsey jr joked about going to jail for illegally hiring the children so, I want to play a clip for you guys from the Dick Cavett show. And please keep in mind that this is after the accident has happened. This is once the, I believe, actually, trial itself has started. Um, Dick Cavett had a bunch of really famous directors on his show for a director's roundtable, including among them Sidney Pollock and Ivan Reitman. Dick Cavett kind of tentatively broaches the subject of um, the Twilight Zone trial, and the only person. On the entire stage, who seems to be willing to talk about it, is Ivan Reitman, who, if you don't know, um, directed Ghostbusters, among many other things, and is an incredible director. Uh, So let's hear what Ivan had to say about the Twilight Zone accident.
0: I don't quite know how to get into this subject, but... um... What's being called the Twilight Zone trial, as we are sitting here now, is taking, uh, taking place. And this is a case where three people were killed in the making of a film. And uh, I think, as far as I know, isn't this a trial unprecedented in uh, this sort of thing, and people being held accountable for the deaths of performers? I think it's the first time Yeah. yeah. But I know. That a director is this, especially. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> did, did any of you wipe your brow like this when this happened, and think this could have happened to anyone?
1: Well, you know, films are really complicated so it's certainly possible especially if you you have stunts. Uh, I had a lot of fires for example in League of Legals and it was something that always concerned me and always worried me. Spe- mm-hmm. I mean, they talk the stu- the special effects people talk about a controlled fire. Don't worry, it's a film and we know what we're doing. And it's a controlled yeah. fire, but there is the really the no such thing that as that a Rachel controlled fire. Controlled war <laughs> you know. I mean, fires seem to have a mind of their own when they want to get going. Yeah. So, uh, it makes you nervous. There seemed to be a lot of things that went wrong and that were sort of awkward that night. I don't really know a lot about it, but uh, certainly those children shouldn't shouldn't have been there.
3: So I wanted to play that because a couple of reasons. First of all, good on you, Ivan Reitman, (laughs) Uh, because as we're going to get to in the second episode, there are an awful lot of directors who I think, to Dick Cavett's point, kind of out of fear because they had maybe done Mm -hmm. similar things, end up rallying Mm -hmm. around John Landis. As far as I can tell, Ivan Reitman is not one of them. Neither, by the way, is Steven Spielberg. So that's the first thing, is that I think it's important to note that while we're looking back on this and saying, oh my God, what were they thinking? What were they doing? I do believe that at the time, this was not, like, should they have been doing this? No. Was this extremely uncommon given the time no. and the way they were running film sets? No, I don't think so. No. No. Um, and the last thing is that what Reitman just said is that the children should never have been there in the first place. He's 100% right. And that that is the thing that you just can't get past. It's also something that, to, I guess, Landis's credit, he and his attorney always said he would have pled guilty to the charge that they failed to apply for state work permits for the children had they been charged with that, they were not charged with that, which is we will get we'll get into some of the failings of the prosecutorial team in the second episode. But they're completely upfront about that. They did not get work permits for this kids. They did pay them under the table. They hired children illegally. So I do want to state the obvious. No one on set thought that what was about to happen could possibly happen. Um, they were behind schedule. They were rushing. They were thoughtless. At the same time, I don't think Landis thought the kids were in danger. There are a lot of reports that said that John Landis actually was very close to them on set when they were shooting this scene. And we'll get to kind of the positions of everything in just a second. (sighs) This is just so rough. Prior to the shoot on July 21st, Micah's mother, Kim—I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce this— Kim Hoa Lee said that she was simply told by George Folsey Jr., remember, our associate producer who's worked with John Landis a ton— That, quote, they were going to shoot the movie, and if they hired Micah, they would use him where a Vietnam village would be bombed and destroyed and only two children would survive. As far as I understand, um, Mrs. Lee and her husband were Vietnamese immigrants. Her husband, at the very least, had lived through the Vietnam War, and he would later say that the explosions that he saw on set were worse than what he had seen in the actual Vietnam War. So there's a key piece of information about the scene that was missing from what I just read you that Folsey told Mrs. Lee. That there's a helicopter? Yeah. There's no mention anywhere of a helicopter even being in the scene, let alone Mm. flying close to her son. Mm -hmm. Renee Chen's father, Mark Chen, said that he'd heard about the opportunity for Renee to appear in the movie through his brother, who was friends with production secretary Donna Schumann, who will come back quite a bit Mm. later in the trial. Um, he said Renee and Micah's audition basically consisted of being paraded in front of Landis on set, who reportedly took a brief look at them and said, quote, it's good, it's fine, end quote. Now we're at the night of July 21st. The children are kept waiting and waiting in a trailer as shoots ran more and more behind schedule. Eventually, the filming began at 2 a.m. on July 22nd. However, Micah and Renee kept laughing. They're kids. Um, mm mm-hmm. Which delayed the scene even further, so frustrated, Landis and co. shut down that shoot for the night and moved on to other scenes. Um, Folsey went to the parents and asked if they could have the kids just return the next evening, which they did. The children and their parents returned July 22nd and again waited for hours. According to Mr. Chen, Folsey reassured him that the shoot would be very simple and also told him that he would not need to accompany his daughter during the actual filming of the scene that night.
2: Which I believe is illegal, you have to have either a student. Well, maybe that's more recent labor laws, but you have to have a studio teacher within view of a monitor so they can review the scene, and you have to have a legal guardian present.
3: We're gonna get into that more. I think some of these laws actually may have come about right. because I, of this. Yeah,
2: fair. I'm just saying that's what you need now. Totally like you can't do.
3: No, I don't. A shoot I don't think. That. I don't even think back then it would have been acceptable or okay to tell a parent that they don't need to be on set with their kid during something like this. Um, yeah. Also, by several accounts, the scene was only rehearsed a few times prior to actual filming and never with the full set of explosions that they were actually going to use. Kevin Quibble, who we mentioned above, would later say that he wasn't given any information about the scene prior to filming. According to the LA Times, another special effects guy, Jerry Williams, said that Paul Stewart, again, he's our special effects supervisor, pulled special effects technician, James Chamomile, who is a key player in this as well aside only minutes before the shoot to tell him not to detonate until the helicopter was at a safe height. So they had never tested this with the full level of explosions they were about to do it with.
2: I bet you they're thinking, like, we don't have time and we don't have money. And that's all that it came down to.
3: In fact, three hours earlier, while shooting a different scene, Dorsey Wingo, our helicopter pilot, had been injured by excess heat from an explosion that was was detonated too close to the UH UH-1B Huey helicopter he was piloting. So there was already an indication that something was wrong. At approximately 2.20 a.m. on July 23rd, Vic Morrow was carrying both children across the river with Dorsey Wingo and five other people on board his helicopter, including Dan Allingham, hovering above them. This is one of the most disputed claims in the entire case and one that I believe the prosecution hangs much of their case on, but I would be remiss not to mention that multiple people claimed, with many later denying, that Landis could be heard over the radio commanding Dorsey to go, quote, lower, 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 resulting in the helicopter being only about 20 to 30 feet above Morrow and the children. It was then that James—sorry, I don't know why all this, oh, this is going to make me cry again— um, it was then that James Camomile triggered a massive explosion that, as far as I understand, they had not tested before this. The explosives damaged one of the helicopter's rotors, causing it to spin out of Wingo's control. And again, he's only 20 feet above the ground at this point. There's there's nothing that he could have done to control the helicopter or get it to land anywhere that he could plan. Um, the helicopter crashed immediately to the ground crushing six-year-old Renee Chen, and as Vic Morrow reached back to her, decapitating him and seven-year-old Micah Dinley. Prior to doing the scene, Morrow reportedly said, I've got to be crazy to do this shot. I should have asked for a double. His final line to the children, which he never got to deliver, was supposed to be, quote, I'll keep you safe, kids. I promise nothing will hurt you. I swear to God. After the movie came out, I want to read an excerpt from a New York Times review from 1983 which said a lot of money and several lives might have been saved if the producers had just re-released the original programs.
2: In the Hollywood era that you're talking about, where the directors wielded all this power and corners were cut on set in service of these big moments, a lot of that has been curbed inside the studio system. Now, stunt doubles and performers are killed, Mm -hmm. injured in horrible ways at kind of an alarming rate still the most recent Resident Evil that was shot, that one of the stunt performers lost her arm. She's broke her spine. She'll never be able to work again. And she has not been paid because they were filming in South Africa and there's a dispute over what insurance policy would cover her. Jesus, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think on one of the Captain America films, one of the stunt doubles suffered brain damage. And then on Deadpool 2, a stunt double, she died in in a motorcycle accident. Outside of the studio system, there is a pervasive attitude that, we got to do whatever it takes to get this movie made. We're going to go guerrilla style. We're going to shoot it. We're we're going to do it the way that Apocalypse Now was shot back in the day. Well, that's and the key point
3: is that that idea that you might seen, see on these sort of non-union outside the box shoots now, that is how these big budget shoots were operating exactly in the 70s yeah. and early 80s. That is the mindset John Landis was operating under was just get the job done no matter what. And when I said I was going to talk about positioning, what I meant is that, by pretty much all accounts, if the helicopter had fallen a, at a little bit of a different angle, it may have crushed John Landis. He was almost directly underneath them. This was just not, this was not safe for anybody. This was putting every single person on that set at risk.
2: I rewatched Nightcrawler the other night, and I promise I'll bring this full back full circle. At the end of the film, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, who's a sociopath, turns to a new set of employees that are working for him, and he says, and I remember... I will never ask you to do something that I would not be comfortable doing myself. Yes. It is. That is the exact perspective. I believe a lot of not just directors, leaders in general like to take as if it is some sort of moral stopgap that they have.
3: Well, and it takes us right back full circle to what we talked about at the beginning, where he potentially felt that he understood every part of the process and I believe, felt that no one was doing anything that he wouldn't feel comfortable doing.
2: Case in point being, if he was close enough to the helicopter to also get hit, he clearly didn't feel the risk was high enough. But the problem is his risk assessment is not something that should or can be transposed onto the people around him, nor should it ever be. A director will always, for the most part, be willing to put themselves in harm's way, be it through their health, be it through their physical, emotional, mental health because they so passionately believe in doing this thing that they'll chase it no matter what. Like it's not it's it's not a healthy person that wants to become a movie director. And I say that oh, as someone crisp. who wants to be a movie <laughs> director. That is someone who desperately wants to create something lasting, that wants control over the process, that wants this thing to outlive them, that cares more about the project than, than even themselves, maybe, because the project is an extension of themselves. That's not the person who ultimately should be allowed to dictate what level of risk other people on the set. You know, This is why we have stunt coordinators who are able to say, we're shutting this down.
3: That is where we will pick up In two weeks, actually, with Twilight Zone Part 2, where we will follow the ensuing investigation, criminal trial, and then civil suits that stretched on for almost a decade following the accident and led to helicopter pilot Dorsey Wingo, special effects coordinator Paul Stewart, unit production manager Dan Allingham, associate producer George Folsey Jr., and, of course, John Landis, charged for the deaths of Vic Morrow, Renee Chen, and Micah Dinley.
1: What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Uthana Uos.